It's Guy's Guy Radio. Here's your host, Robert Manny. All right, welcome to Guy's Guy's Radio. This is your host, Robert Manny, welcoming you to the show where men and women can be at their best and everyone wins Guy's Guy's Radio. We're here to inform you, to inspire you, empower you, get you to think, we'll get you to feel, and hopefully get you to act. I bring on guests who are going to share their stories, their insights, their journeys, their experiences to add value to you, the listeners, and I learn a lot when I listen to my guests also, and hopefully we can use some of that information. That's basically it. It's a service. I want people to come on and entertain, but also inform, and that's what we do here on Guys Guys Radio. So we've got a good show for you today. We've got two guests. The first guest is W. Keith uh, Campbell, Ph.D., and he's written a book called The New Science of Narcissism. I'm looking at the cover right now, and it's a of somebody taking a selfie of themselves, and I think we can all relate to that. The uh, concept of narcissism has come more to the forefront in the last 30 years uh, because we're in a culture now where everybody's a brand and everybody's on social media and you need to get likes and followers and that's how you measure people and all of that. And people are willing to do anything. If you go on Instagram, like, here I am, there's, there's, there's not much mystery there. Uh, and it's just, this is how it is. So is it healthy? I don't know. And then we've got people in the public uh, public space who, and, and in the government who have been accused of narcissism, and uh, we need to talk about it. So let's get Keith on here in a few minutes, and we'll go through what is narcissism, how does it work, can it be healthy, what do you do if you're dealing with somebody with narcissistic tendencies, uh, what happens uh, if with your kids What's a healthy way? Is there a phase they go through? How do you monitor that? And how do you monitor yourself? So that's what we're going to do with Keith Campbell, PhD. And then we've also got Brad Zimmerman. He is a New York-based comedian and actor. He's got a one-man show that's been syndicated for the past six years. It's called My Son the Waiter, A Jewish Tragedy. It's very funny. It's great storytelling. And obviously, the show has been on hiatus for a while because of covid and I just thought it was very important to have Brad on as a representative of the performing arts community because sometimes we don't think about the fact that, hey, you know, those performers, those people who make us laugh and smile and feel something, uh, make emotional connection with us, that they're not making a living right now the same way unless they can figure out how to make some money off of streaming or et cetera. But, yeah, hey, I was going to go see the Stones here in San Diego, and that got shut down. And they're, they're banned. Obviously, they're not hurting for money, but they, you know, they have to cancel a whole tour. And there's a lot of small bands who, you know, they can't get out there right now. And for if you are a small band, you need to get on the road. You need to get your face out there. So it's been devastating for the performing arts community, and hopefully we'll get through that. But I want to give a representative, in this case Brad Zimmerman, an opportunity to come on the show Tell us about what's been happening, what the expectations are from his management as to when he can get back out there. And also, I want to give him a platform to do some, do some comedy for three or four minutes. So that's what we're going to do today on Guys Guys Radio. I also want to talk about an incident that I had this past week that has taught me a lot, and I'm still not done going through the lessons. And I, I wanted to share it, and I could do a whole hour on this, but I'm not going to. But basically... I'm a boomer, and I, uh, I had an incident the other night where I had incredible pain, and it went right in my abdomen. It went right through the morning. The next thing you know, I'm having an emergency appendectomy after hours in the emergency room, and great doctors, and I think they did a great job. And uh, what sounds like a simple procedure, 
you know, it's not. It's never a simple procedure because the appendix wasn't doing well. Uh, it was blocked and it had to come out before it burst and then there was some infection and blah, 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 and then they have to clean you out on the inside. So I know most people have uh, appendectomies when they're nine or in third grade or whatever, but for me, it happened now. And the older you are, you know, you can bounce back, but it's not quite as easy. That said, and I'm on my fifth day of re, uh, recovery. That said, I am so glad that I take such good care of myself between diet, fitness, rest, spirituality, meditation, etc. I know that the way I take care of myself, I'm not going to say it saved my life, but it's made this experience a lot more palatable than it may have been. So it's very important to take care of yourselves. And yes, people could say, oh, look at you. You took such good care of yourself and you got sick. Well, I didn't get sick and you had something that was infected in your body, an organ. Like, okay, yes. However, because I have been so healthy, I was able to endure this and endure it as, as strongly as I could and, and get through it. And believe me, this was not easy, and I'm still going through a lot of the trials and tribulations of recovery, but I'm getting through it, and I know I am through it, and I've had all types of lessons, downloads come down to me as I've been in bed at night and shivering and sweating and, and having crazy dreams and all types of stuff and detoxing and all the meds they give you, and you just have to go through it and uh, be selective about uh, what, what choices you make along the way. But this is what happens. Life throws things at you, and you need to be ready for those, those random times when something could happen. For instance, you're a great driver, and you're driving down the street, and somebody is not paying attention, they're texting you something, and they start to drive like right at you. What do you do? You have to have your wherewithal. You have to be on it. And if you have your instincts there and you have your reflexes, you get out of the way. But you have to be ready right at that second. You don't have time. But the prep that you made in terms of how you drive defensively, how you take care of yourself, all of that stuff comes into context. So my message is, and I forgive me for being preachy, but I think it helped me tremendously, is that if you lay the groundwork and a solid foundation for the way you take care of yourself, when stuff happens, and it will happen, everybody has stuff happen to them, I think, one, things happen for a reason to catapult you to the next level of something and some lessons to be learned. And uh, secondly, you've got to be prepared. You've got to, you've got to, you have that basis of a foundation of you're, you're in good shape, and this way you can withstand what gets thrown at you. So forgive me, but this is what happened to me. And as you can hear, I'm not 100% myself right now. I'm doing the best I can, but I wanted to be here for you. The show must go on, so I'm doing this show. And I think the message is a really important one that we have to take care of ourselves because stuff happens. And if you do take care of yourself, when stuff happens, you'll be in the best position to deal with it. So anyhow, Guys Guys Radio, we've got a couple of great interviews coming up. Thanks so much for being here. It's Guys Guy Radio. All right, Guys Guys Radio, your host, Robert Manny. I've got a special guest. We're going to talk about something that's very 
prevalent and relevant in our culture today, and that is narcissism. So I have one of the top experts in the world on that. His name is W. Keith Campbell. He's a PhD professor of psychology at the University of Georgia. He's well as the author of the Narcissism, Narcissism Epidemic, When You Love a Man Who Loves Himself, and more than 120 peer-reviewed articles. He lives in Athens, Georgia, where I assume he is right now. And we're going to talk about his new book, The New Science of Narcissism, Understanding One of the Greatest Psychological Challenges of Our Time and What You Can Do About It. And I have a copy of the book here, and it's obviously it's got a guy holding up a hand, holding up a phone. Somebody's taking a sel selfie. We haven't seen much of that. Welcome to Guys Guys Radio, Dr. Campbell. Hey, thanks for having me. Well, my pleasure. So why don't we start right at the beginning? Um, what is narcissism? Yeah, narcissism in, in the shortest sense is an inflated view of yourself, thinking you're better than other people, maybe having a sense of entitlement. And that's generally how we use the word. But when we talk about in psychology, we tend to be a little more technical or nuanced about it, and I'm happy to go into it with your audience a little bit. Um, first, we think about narcissism as a personality trait. And what that means is everybody's you know, on there on, at some level. Most people are kind of in the middle on narcissism, but some are really high and a few are pretty low. So it's something normally distributed. Um, and within that trait of narcissism, there's two different forms that we run across. The first, which is what most of your listeners are familiar with and what you see when you're, you know, watching the news, you're getting in bad relationships, have a terrible boss, is it's more grandiose narcissism. And that's kind of this combination of this self-centeredness and antagonism along with some ambition and drive. So it's, a, it's an interesting combination because you have people who are very driven and some can sometimes be very likable and charismatic and extroverted, but are also sort of entitled and antagonistic and can be manipulative and exploitative. And so that's a more grandiose form. And then there's this other form, which is more vulnerable, and it's the people who are self-centered, but are also a little bit insecure, have low self-esteem. You know, these, these we sometimes call shy or covert narcissists or basement narcissists because they're living in their mom's basement, you know, because they're a little fearful, but they think the world should be coming to them and giving them greatness. So those are the two forms we usually talk about in traits. And then I'm happy to talk about the third form, which is the clinical diagnosis or disorder of narcissistic personality disorder. Uh, why don't you real quick touch on the third part, too? Yeah. So uh, this gets conf gets confused with people when your narcissism ex is extreme. So imagine you're self-centered, you're arrogant, you're kind of living your life and it's backfiring. Your, your marriage is falling apart because you're cheating on your spouse. You're, you're ta you know, you your business is getting away from you because you're cheating on your partners. Um, it can become a disorder and it can be treated. But that is about, you know, we, we look at about 2% of the population that would have a diagnosed clinical disorder. Again, a combination of very high narcissism, but this clinical impairment. If it doesn't, if it's not impairing, if you're just sort of an arrogant jerk, but you're happy and your life works, it's not a disorder, it's just a personality. Okay, that's good to cl clarify that, thank you. So what you're saying seems to be that it's not always bad, it's kind of part of everybody has a little bit of narcissism, and I guess I, I notice in children, there is a, it uh, seems to be kind of a, uh, they kind of step through narcissism uh, in the ages, and maybe it's, I don't know, three to five or three to 10 or something, I don't know, but talk to us a little bit about narcissism, the normalcy of it, and and how kids process it. Yeah, I, both those points are really good. The first, in, in terms of children, uh, narcissism is, narciss, 
there's so many S's in there, even <laughs> I mess it up, man. Uh, narcissism is something you see in children, you talk about in children, there's this basic self-centeredness, there's attention seeking, you see young kids dance around naked and no one says that's a disorder, they say that's what kids do. Um, so it's something very normal and, and old, you know, psychologists, even Freud talked about it as a normal stage of development. And even in adolescence, you know, teenagers being a little bit self-centered is something normal we see. And I, you know, I don't, that's kind of how it is. Usually what happens is we get older, we sort of, be, we want to have some intimacy with people. We want to, we want to connect to the community. Um, we have to get beyond ourselves. We have to give up something in order to get something bigger. And when people don't make that transition, that's where narcissism can be a real problem. In terms of of your first question, I see narcissism as a trade-off. I don't see it as good or bad. I mean, I think in general it's a little bit negative, but I really try to conceptualize all personality, but especially narcissism is a trade-off. It has some benefits and has some costs, and that's the problem. If we're just bad, you know, you deal with it, but it's got some good stuff and some bad stuff. Now, it seems like uh, two things. One, it, I, 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 I always think of when I think of narcissism, uh, uh, a lack of empathy you know, there's this mm -hmm. self-centeredness aspect, but also there's this lack of empathy. And I'm wondering, um, is this part of the quote-unquote kind of narcissism epidemic, if you will, that's uh, rampant in our culture these days? And with the advent of the, you know, the selfies and the cell phone and uh, everything being done remotely now and every, you know, everybody's kind of into their own heads. Yeah, so that that lack of empathy is really core to narcissism. And there's been a lot of research on this. and and kind of discussion. Originally, we thought, well, there was no capacity for empathy. People are narcissistic couldn't have empathy, but it doesn't seem to be the case. It seems to be that there's some perspective take, taking and there's some empathy. It's just people are, who are self-centered care about themselves a little more and they just don't really practice feeling for other people. Um, in terms of Culture, yeah, all these things that you're talking about are, are sort of breaking down empathy. We're disconnected from people living in urban environments, you know, living living disconnected from the sources of our food, all those things. Um, but but another thing right now is fear. You know, we're kind of in this this with the pandemic where everyone's scared on top of that. So you have people who are sort of self-centered and and want attention at the same time everybody's scared so there's less trust of people it's a really tough time people are very very isolated right now mm -hmm. so would you say that narcissism is a hyperbolic state of insecurity in some ways no i okay. think i think that is something that people think um and people talk about but I think what you generally see is that there's some folks who are just very confident and very driven and willing to step on people and are very aggressive and their their life is out of balance. They don't have a lot of love. They don't have a lot of affection. You know, they die alone. But when they're doing it, they're not insecure as, as much as in, unstable because they don't have a family or somebody who loves them to fall back on. So they're unstable, but not insecure. On the other hand, you have you do have people who are more vulnerably narcissistic who are insecure, and which makes it a little more complicated. You have plenty of people who are both really grandiose and also insecure. So what you'll have is you'll have somebody who has the characteristics of a really ambitious, driven person, but also maybe some early trauma or bad stuff happens, and they become a little bit unstable. And sort sort of that drive is about self promotion. So you can get some interesting combinations. 
Uh, okay, Dr. Keith Campbell, W. Keith Campbell, PhD, is our guest on Guys Guys Radio. We're talking about narcissism and his newest book called The New Science of Narcissism. Um, question, um, with families, why is it that some members of a family display narcissism and others don't? Well, or is there a reason? I mean, I I think in if, I'm not sure exactly how you're answering the asking the question in terms of how to. So I'm going to address it two ways. Okay. One, in terms of family structure, you do sometimes see families where both parents are somewhat narcissistic and, and that sort of works. But you often see these more dysfunctional families where there's sort of one parent who's this really narcissistic figure and can be a tyrant or really, you know, really destructive. And so that's something that you do see. But the reason for that is if there were two people like that, it would probably be a disaster. And it's hard to find two people like that in the first place. In terms of of um, really just you know heredity, narcissism is genetic in some basic sense. Like all personality traits, you can you can it can be inherited. It runs in families, just like depression does or anything else. And so, like any family, you go well. Everything's heritable, but you know you have kids. Everybody has kids. They realize your kids are completely different. I mean, if they're not identical t- twins. Kids are, have very different personalities, even with the same parents. So genetics right. matter over time and in the big picture. But in a single family, you know, they, they just they don't they're not as clean as you'd think. How about um, is are there different areas of the brain that um, work with empathy versus narcissism? I I'm gonna say I'm gonna say I don't know the answer to that right now because. The work we've done on personality and the brain in terms of neural structure, neural processing or circuitry is just falling apart. I mean, just the findings have not been stable. I mean, when I go to conferences, I talk to people, they just can't find a lot of stable findings. There is a lot more work on empathy, um, but even some of that's falling apart. So I just I just don't know to answer a lot of that brain stuff. OK, if you. Uh, for you know, us as uh, people as social beings, um, is there a kind of a a spectrum of tendencies that we can look for when we're determining, um, you know, not getting judgmental, but saying, okay, I understand where this person's coming from because of narcissism? In in terms of, can we use that as a way to judge it? Like, can we categorize or or sort of use it to interpret people's behavior? Yes. Oh, certainly we can. I mean, I, I use narcissism all the time. Um, the challenge is, I mean, I'm a professional, I'm a professional, so I don't recommend doing this at home. I can't believe I'm talking about that with narcissism. Um, because we use these, we use these as shortcuts a lot as labels, but at the same time, if I'm using this as a shortcut with my friends, I know there's a lot of complexity in there. I don't hold it too firmly. So when, when I talk to, you know, with individuals, it's, it's sometimes better just to focus on the traits. So you can find two people and say they're narcissistic, and one person is sort of likable but self-centered and a bit of a bore at parties, but not a bad guy. And another person is really just mean and self-centered and hostile and really a bad guy. And they're both narcissistic. So that label needs some more fleshing out to be to be really useful. In terms of a quote-unquote, I'm using, it's probably not the right word, cure or way to deal with this, is is it meditation or is it medication? You know, I think I think it really depends on precisely what element of narcissism you're trying to change. So with 
you know what we I should just say there is no you know gold standard treatment for narcissistic personality disorder uh, just because there's lack of research on it there's there's lots of treatments that seem to work and the key is get in treatment and work and if you're willing to work on yourself people seem to be able to change so in terms of the direction of change I think it's really important to figure out what your issue is before you try to change so Personally, I get entitled sometimes. I deal, you know, with a lot of interactions. I'm like, why isn't this more efficient? Why isn't it more effective? My issue is entitlement. And really, I can work on that with something like gratitude. Like, dude, relax. You're connect. You're just another person. Have some gratitude. At least things are working. At least we're eating, you know. That helps with, with that. Somebody else might be compassion. It might be they don't feel entitled, but they're just kind of callous. They don't know how to open up. And maybe something like a loving kindness meditation would be a helpful practice for them. So I think it's just you kind of nail down what that piece is. If it's ego, you know, if, you, if you're just ego, you have accountability. You just keep a record of all your mistakes. So you can go look at yourself and say, you know, I screwed up here, I screwed up here. Maybe when I pick this next stock, I should be a little more cautious than I feel in my head. So all those different those different mistakes can be dealt with specifically, but you just really want to nail down what the issue is. What is it about our culture now, if we haven't already touched on it, kind of, the you know, with the selfies and everything else that is um, kind of a. turning this narcissism into a, a really big deal now? Is it just something we're discovering or is it the way we behave as a culture with all our reliance on technology and the phone and the selfies and all of that and Instagram and stories and all this stuff? Is that is that feeding this narcissistic frenzy or has this something that's always been around and now it's on steroids, if you will, because of uh, the tools that we have? So it's it's really a tough question because part of what's happened is the effects of social media on culture might have changed over time so when we first started looking at social media it was all about the ego and self-promotion and now it's more like some people self-promoting but it's making a whole lot of people real depressed you know because we're on social media and they're socially comparing and we're seeing a lot of depression so it's kind of a complicated story but to me the themes that you know that in culture that lead to narcissism is is one, the capacity to just pretend you're anything you want to be. You know, you just have unlimited fantasy. You don't have actual reality in terms of your feedback, whether you're, you know, and if you live in a small town and your brothers and sisters punch you out if you're a jerk and your friends know who you are and you, you work your job and you have an earned reputation, good or bad, it's very hard for narcissism to come about. But in a society where people are distant from each other and they're communicating virtually, where there's not a lot of trust to start with. I mean, narcissism works, you know, and especially in a society where everyone's got to build a brand and go out and stand up. Narcissism works a little bit and there's nothing really keeping it in check. There's no, I mean, you don't see the successful non-narcissists out there. You don't go, oh, look at those people. They, they seem so kind of peaceful and humble and they're really killing it. You, you just don't see that in our society. You see people who are depressed or people who are self-promoting. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, w. Keith Campbell, PhD. The new book is The New Science of Narcissism. He's here on Guys Guys Radio. Um, what about, um, can, can narcissism lead to some, an intolerance or an acceptance of failure? Does, does, does narcissism impact how we deal with those things? Because whoever you are, you're going to deal with some failures in life. And I'm sure it's tougher for some people than others. Does narcissism play a role? And if so, oh. what role? Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
We find with narcissism that it, it's very difficult to take negative feedback. And of course, failure is a big example of that. You know, some of my early research was just giving people failure feedback after measuring their narcissism scores. And so what you see with narcissism with failure feedback is there's a deflection of blame. So either they blame the person who gave the test, they say it doesn't matter, they blame their, their partners, they blame their coworkers, they just deflect blame and they take credit. And that combination of deflecting blame and, 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 uh, and taking credit is really good for boosting your self-esteem. It's really good for boosting your self-image, but it makes it, it makes it very difficult to learn because you, you don't process errors. So you don't, you don't learn. You become overconfident. You make the same mistakes over and over and over. And you ruin your relationships because you're blaming everybody. So it's really an exchange of ego. You're getting ego, but you're screwing up your relationships and your ability to succeed. All right. The elephant in the room. Obviously, we have to talk about our president, because whether you're a supporter or not, you'd have to agree that he exhibits some traits of narcissism. And some people like that about him and other people are repulsed by it. How, is Trump a narcissist? And if so, how should the country view him in uh, in an empathetic way, if you will, and in a way that say, well, maybe he, you know, maybe that personality is good for us, or not. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I mean, I, I'm going to approach this question. I, I'm sick of politics, but I think it's right. such an important question. I want to point it. Uh, I'll approach it scientifically to the best I can. Yes. Um, we've done research on this. We've had people rate Trump's personality, but Trump supporters, Hillary Clinton supporters, so it's a little out of date. Everybody agrees Trump's profile is narcissistic. I mean, it's kind of was his brand in the 80s, you know, larger than life, brash, beautiful spouse, name in, on buildings, the best of the best. This is deal. The difference is people who support him see him as sort of a patriotic, successful narcissist. He's he's competent and he kind of cares about the country, even though they know he can be a jerk, you know, they see him as basically, you know, they, their guy. So he's not a bad guy. Right. People on the other side see him as not just narcissistic, but really unstable, emotionally erratic and very impulsive and really a dangerous, I, I mean, kind of dysregulated psychopath in a way, a very dangerous, malignant, that's just dis, out of control. And yeah. so they're both seeing narcissism, but they're both seeing, you know, one is a much more likable form and a form that is consistent with a lot of presidents. You know, a lot of our presidents are very narcissistic, you know, Johnson and Nixon and, and Clinton and, um, and both Roosevelt. So, there, you know, there's a lot of ego in the presidency. So people that like Trump would say, well, he's consistent with that, maybe a little colorful. People hate Trump go, he's inconsistent with that because he's so out of control. Those men were all competent, but they're both seen ego. Got it. Great answer. Um, as a parent, um, how can we kind of look at our kids, our children as they're growing up and knowing that they're going to exhibit some traits of narcissism as part of their uh, healthy um, growth, if you will, what do we need to be aware of or look for to make sure it doesn't, that it's, it's tempered? Uh, particularly with all the opportunities for, um, you know, the selfies and the technology and the social media and all that stuff where we get into this whole judging thing. And I think it, it promotes narcissism, whether it's intended to do that or not, do that or not. So what can parents do to be mindful oh, yeah. to make sure that their kids don't get out of control with it? Yeah, um, 
this the shortest answer is make sure your friend your kids have friends have warm loving relationships to the extent possible encourage love i mean love is the greatest antidote to narcissism and the second thing that's pretty simple is encourage passion or fun or enjoyment or just having a good time so kids are having a good time with their friends they're not engaged in a bunch of ego promotion they're not engaged in self-promotion they're not plugged into some some uh powerful you know techno corporation that feeds on creating ego and using that as a currency i mean basically that's what a lot of this is it gets too weird i won't go down that rabbit hole but if having fun with their friends they're going to avoid the ego that's that's the best shortest advice i can give terrific well dr campbell you're doing great work and you're a real expert. So let's uh, wrap it up. Tell everybody where they can find your books, learn more about you and, and really to educate themselves about narcissism. Oh, sure. Um, the New Science of Narcissism is available bookstores anywhere, local bookstore, uh, Amazon. Um, check out um, Narcissism Lab is a website that uh, we put up that's got some narcissism questionnaires on there if you want to take them and just see how you score, just for curiosity. It's not clinical. Um, WKeithCampbell.com. Awesome. Listen, you've been great. You're a guy's guy. I'm really appreciative of you being here on the show and educating us because I think this is a really important topic we need to learn a lot more about, and you have helped us with that. So thank you, Dr. Campbell. Great. Thanks for having me. That was great. It's Guy's Guy Radio. All right, Guy's Guy's Radio, your host, Robert Manny. I've got a special treat for you today. A wonderful storyteller, comedian, and a good friend of mine. His name is Brad Zimmerman. And it's very important right now to support our uh, live performers because with the COVID, you know, people make a living. They go out there and they entertain us. They, it's a service. It's art. It's culture. It's for us. It reflects who we are and how we live. And it's very important that we support these folks. And I want to have my friend Brad on here because, first of all, he's a terrific talent. And secondly, he's got a one-man show that's called uh, My Son the Waiter, A Jewish Tragedy. And he's got a second show that he's working on right now that's ready to go. And it's called My Rise to the Middle. So let me tell you a little bit about Brad. He's a storyteller, as I mentioned. He's a New Yorker. He's a comic. He's an actor. He played Johnny Sachs Lawyer on The Sopranos. He's got this syndicated, long-running show that's on hiatus right now, obviously. And he's got a second show that'll come out probably next year. He's a longtime friend. He taught me how to drive a long time ago. And as you know, at this time of the COVID and everything happening, it's really important to reconnect with our friends. And I think a lot of people are doing that through Zoom meetings or text threads and you know, we always need to look for the silver silver lining and the opportunities when there's chaos. And in this case, the opportunity is reconnecting with people who are longtime friends and really appreciating the value of friendship and longtime friendships. Because how many people have longtime friendships anymore? Everybody's on the go. Everybody's doing something. So anyhow, let me introduce you to my very special guest, Brad Zimmerman. Welcome to the show, Brad. Bob, it's always a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. All right. So listen, you're a live performer. You've got your one man show, My Son, the Waiter, A Jewish Tragedy. And you've got another one baked called My Rise to the Middle. What's going on out there? How, what's happening for the live performers like yourself? 
Well, a lot of them are trying to do Zoom work. Um, a lot of them are doing, not a lot of them. Uh, I have some friends who are actually, they've started slowly, Bob, to open up comedy clubs with, you know, social distancing where they can have 25% capacity, et cetera. So, you know, uh, some people are, are getting money via Sirius Radio if they have, you know, stuff that's streaming, which is actually making them quite a bit of money. So that's a small percentage. Most of us are just writing new material and uh, trying to make each day really purposeful and fill it out. And that's what I'm doing. I'm working on the sequel really hard. I'm optimistic, but the unknown is always there in the background. When will the world open? When will I take off a mask? When can I shake your hand? You know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's a very, very challenging period of time. Uh, yes, a very tenuous situation. Brad is in New York City, my beloved New York, where I lived for 30 years. I'm out here in Southern California. We're both experiencing the pandemic in slightly different ways. And I really feel for New York because, you know, New York is built on proximity and people getting together, small clubs, comedy, music, whatever. And then you have all the connections from that. You have people who work on Broadway, people who are trying to get jobs acting, and then they work in restaurants. Then the restaurants are getting hit because there's layoffs and you can't eat inside and the weather's going to change. What's, what's the uh, vibe that you're getting and the guidance from your management? What are they saying about when they think you'll be able to get back out there on the road and also perform uh, for live audiences in the New York metro area? Well, my producer, who I speak to occasionally, um, says to me, you know, I have a gig in January in Florida. I doubt that's going to happen. I have my next gig is a five-week run in March and February in Arizona. Who knows? But then I have Boston for seven weeks in the spring. So he's kind of optimistic that will happen. All right. What, what has it been, what's been the experience um, of uh, doing a couple of shows? You, I know you worked outside, and it's a whole different thing, particularly if you're doing comedy and you have to that people are socially different, distanced and you have to kind of walk around. What has that been like? And it has, it, has it helped you? Has it kind of uh, honed your chops at all in any way? Uh, there's nothing in, the, in every single performance that I've ever given, no matter what the situation. I've done cruise ships where people have yelled out, get to the punchline. I've done comedy clubs where people have yelled out, say something funny. So the reality is, the outside, you hear the laughter, but you hear it later. You don't hear it right immediately. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So getting used to that is not easy because you're not sure that you're getting the kind of response that you normally get immediately. So it, it throws you a little bit. You have to get, you know, it's like a muscle. You have to get comfortable with that kind of response that's delayed. Because you're not a you're not a, a traditional comic per se. You can do routines and you're fantastic. But I see you as a as a storyteller, and woven through your work is yes. the uh, the um, experience of being a New York Jewish person. Is that that's correct, right? And and what does that mean to you? And what does it mean to your yes, work? That's that absolutely. story. So what does that mean to you and to the uh, to the audience? Because you know not everybody's Jewish. But the people who are can certainly strongly relate to it. But the Jewish experience is something that people can relate to as an experience, but not necessarily 
by being Jewish. You know what I mean? Yes. Well, actually, when for my money, the when you're that question really kind of relates to the Jewish mother. Okay. You know, um, you know, there is a, a, a joke in my show that goes, there's a big controversy on the Jewish view of when life begins. In Jewish tradition, the fetus is not considered viable till after it graduates from medical school. Now, th that, that is a mother's, that's more the mother. That's the mother's whole thing. Another, you know, I've had so many mothers, Indian mothers, Chinese mothers, African-American mothers come up to me and say, we get it. Yep. So it's a universal piece because it doesn't just relate to how a Jewish mother is responding to her son struggling. It relates to the fact that, you know, everybody is in the same boat in terms of the mother wants the child to be happy, to be successful. So I think, I think the Jews get it, but I think everybody does. What do you think the main message is, is in the show? And, you know, what do you want people to relate to or take away from the show? Because it is a memoir and it's, there's a lot of truth in it. And there's a lot of emotion, a lot of heart in it. And when you sit in the audience, you look at it and like, wow, this guy's putting it out there. I'll give you a heck of a lot of credit. You put it out there, your heart's out there on a plate. And uh, it could even be a little bit at some points, like, I don't want to say discomforting. It's too big a word, but like, wow, I can't believe how honest he's being. What are your thoughts on that? And what has been the reception right. to that? Well, th that's a great question. You know, it's a subjective experience. Every time I do the show, I know that there's going to be people who think it's great. There's going to be people who think it's very good. People who think it's good and people who think it's okay. So, you know, in terms of the emotional and all of that, I think authenticity, which is what I really bring to the table more than anything, is you can't not pay attention to somebody who's being real. I really believe that, even if it's comedians. There are a lot of comedians who are not funny to me because there's no authenticity in their, in their anything that they do. But if somebody's really being real, yes, there's going to be people who are uncomfortable. Hmm. The message you asked about, I think it's if you can find what you love to do and are willing to pay a price, because it's an enormous price, you come to that fork in the road. Do you want to write that novel knowing that you may never get it published? Or... Do you want security of family and not to struggle? So you go to business school. Who goes, how, what is the percentage that stay with the novel? Tiny. So my feeling is find something you love, get great at it, put it out there. And that in itself is success. Tell us about your uh, seminal piece of work, the My Son, the Waiter, A Jewish Tragedy. What is that really about? And what do you want people to get out of it? And what are they getting out of it? Um, I know there's a very strong relationship between you and your mom in it. Your dad's a little bit in the background. It's a universal theme. And then there's the Jewish angle also, but uh, that a lot of Jewish people can relate to. But overall, what, what, are, you, what are you aiming at with this uh, one-man show? Well, um, I think that based on having done it six years, that it, it, the, the threat of the piece is a man who stays the course. And in other words, he chooses something to do that is, in a sense, a good fit, even a better fit once I 
stop doing the acting, even though it, it's always there, and turn to comedy. The, the writing, performing, and being my own boss, that's a nice little, it's like a one-person show, a one-man sport, like tennis. But I think the thread, Bob, is if you can find what you love and you try to master it. David Mamet said, if you choose mastering a craft over a paycheck, it's pretty courageous. I don't think of myself as being courageous at all. I just think of myself as somebody who didn't want to work for my father or in the institutional world. Mm -hmm. Given who I am, I needed something creative. I needed something where I could be in front of an audience. And I found it. And, uh, you know, the idea that I've been in the same one-room apartment for how long have I been? For 39 years. I see mansion. And at first, it's like a little like, uh, and then that leaves because I'm, I'm fine right where I don't need 11 bathrooms. You, you okay. know what I'm saying? Yep. So I'm good. Okay. Uh, my, my rise to the middle. So where does that take you in your journey? I think that it digs deeper. And it, it's not a hybrid, not part stand-up, but it's all theater. And I think it takes you deeper into the why it took me so long to get some momentum going. You know, um, when I first, I, I remember I, I wrote a new line, which I'm not going to do tonight, but I wrote a new line, which I love, is that my ambition when I first moved to New York was geared more towards not overexerting myself. Do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> it's like, you know, pursuing a career was 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 not as important. I, I didn't want pursuing a career to interfere with my sleep. You, you know what I'm saying? So mm -hmm. the reality is, I went from that, which was passive and 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 afraid, and and to you know somebody who's now very very much driven. And uh, Bruce Springsteen says it in the in the forward. He said, you know, craft and all that, get good, this and that. He said, if you want to take it all the way to the end of the night, there's a fire in the hole that just won't quit burning. Now, I have the fire now, but it took me a hell of a long time for that, you know, for that, for it to get, you know, started, you yeah. know? Mm -hmm. So that's gratifying unto itself. It just came very late. Okay, how about doing a, now you probably will go, because the second show is sensational. I've seen it a few times, and you're going to get a deal. And obviously, it begs the question of a trilogy. Uh, are you going to do, you, I guess that's in your plan, thematically, any thoughts on that? And then are you writing material based on COVID? And do you think the comedy world will actually weave COVID into routines? Absolutely. I, I don't think they have any choice. Um, in fact, and I'm not going to do it tonight, but I'm, somebody sent me this. My mother is conflicted by the mask. On one hand, you know, she's glad that it keeps me safe, but sad that she gets to see what I would have looked like if I had gone to medical school. <laughs> so, you know, that, that's something that people will say. And, you know, they're going to laugh. It's a great, I may open with it when I do my sequel. Oh, I love it's it. a great for. So yes, they're going to they're going to talk about it. The, the bottom line, Bob, is that I'm going to you can't come out as a comedian when the world opens again and not and, and talk all of a sudden talk about, oh, my daughter's having problems. And you have to somehow weave yourself in 
and and I'm not saying you mentioned the COVID, but you have to mention something that we've been through. Got it. So people, and then you go from there. Okay. And um, I think that's what I'll have to do. We're going to do a couple of things here. One, I want to get the information out there from Brad as to where people can catch his YouTube act and also uh, his website. And then Brad's going to give us a couple of minutes of material. I'm going to step back and I'm going to turn the mic over to Brad. So tell us where, where, where we can find you and then have at it, my friend. Okay. So um, my YouTube show is called A Bit of Brad. That's the name of it's on YouTube, A Bit of Brad. Um, I will also be at the Morristown Mayo Center for the Arts on November 7th doing the sequel. This is in New Jersey. And uh, that's November 7th at 7.30. Tickets are already on sale. It's a fundraiser. I offered to do it because, you know, you spend money to make it. So right now, that's pretty much it. I'm doing a, a Zoom thing tomorrow night that I think is being streamed, and it's another cancer fundraiser, so I'm not getting anything. But it's a chance to help, you know, causes. So that being said, let me, let me just tell you a little bit uh, about myself. Um, from my show, My Son, the Waiter of Jewish Tragedy. Uh, moved to New York in 1978 to make it as an actor for the next 29 years. I worked as a waiter. That's a lot longer than is considered understandable. By 1982, the job had lost its freshness for me. So then it became one of those things I do that I don't place a premium on being the best. I would go to work essentially to leave. <laughs> Always worked in casual restaurants, suited me. I could never work upscale, fine dining, but you have to be with it. You have to know things. I know two things about wine. We have it or we don't. I had a customer once who said to me, what's the difference between the Cabernet and the Cote du Rhone? I said a dollar. <laughs> I was at work one day, guy walks in, he's like this, Bob. He's, he's flagging me down as he's being led to the table. So I walked over, he says to me, I'm in a hurry. I said, so go. <laughs> I'm waiting on a man and a woman. He ordered, she couldn't make up her mind, took forever trying to decide what to eat. So while she's deciding, the guy tries to occupy me. He says to me, so what are you doing when you're not here? I said, I have other tables. <laughs> now. Being a waiter for a long time, very humbling, but I could live with myself if I didn't have a family because that's where the pressure comes from. You know what it's like when you're not successful and your mother tells you about somebody who is? Did you know that Jackson just sold his business for $90 million? See, I didn't know that. I mean, I hear success stories that are mind-boggling. This one's the top headache doctor in the world. This one's building a home in Florida. 125,000 square feet. Imagine what she tells her friends about me. If all goes well, I think Brad is going to buy a bookcase. <laughs> so I was on a bus the other day. Woman sitting behind me having a cell phone conversation. One of these upbeat, perky, living her life at my expense, cell phone conversation. You know, Michael's taking me to Barbados. I love my ring. Guess what? We saw a house in the Hamptons we both like. You'll have to go out. You'll have to go. So I took out my cell phone. I started showcasing my life. 
I just borrowed $5 from a busboy. <laughs> I haven't had a girlfriend since Watergate. But guess what? For my summer vacation, I put my fan on high. <laughs> so, by the way, I'm going to visit my mother for Thanksgiving. One time I was visiting her. I was sitting in the living room watching television. She's in her room reading. This drifted in from the other room. Brad, Jane Bendel's son, Mark, just got a hair transplant. She says it looks tremendous. You can't even tell. Whatever it costs, $2,2500, I'd be more than happy to pay for it. I would love a full head of hair. You have no idea. But I want to grow it. I don't want it appearing out of the blue. I don't think hair is something that should prompt the question, where'd you get it? <laughs> Thank you. All right. Fantastic. My buddy, Brad Zimmerman, the name of the show, the current show is My Son, the Waiter, A Jewish Tragedy. The new one is My Rise to the Middle. I don't know what the name's going to be for the third one, but it's going to be great. I love you, buddy. Thanks so much for being here. Stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll see you soon face to face. Okay. Now I'm going to order my dinner. Is that okay? That's <laughs> good. It's Guy's Guy Radio. Okay, terrific interviews with our special guests on Guy's Guy's Radio this week. W. Keith Campbell, Ph.D., and my friend from New York City, actor-comedian extraordinaire Brad Zimmerman. So two very different guys, two very different messages, but both helpful. So what do we learn? From Keith, I think, uh, about narcissism, we learned that narcissism can be somewhat healthy and it can be a stage that people go through. But on the other hand, if it's not in moderate doses, it can get out of control. And I'm sure you've seen it uh, displayed by lots of people out there and with all of our social media and the selfies and all that stuff. Uh, it's it's pretty rampant now. So. Uh, we need to get a little bit of a lid on it. Obviously, we're going to make laws about you can't be a narcissist, but just be aware for yourself if you're displaying uh, narcissistic tendencies and make sure you remind yourself that really we're here to, to serve, be about others, our families, etc., and having some self-worth. Nothing wrong with that, but let's not make it you know all about you because it isn't. There are other people. From Brad, you know, Brad's been through a long journey honing his craft, following his dream. And uh, as he said, sometimes we reach a fork in a road and we say, do we want to write the book? Do we want to get the business career? Have probably more security, financial security, etc. And he chose the path that felt right for him. And as he said, he doesn't need 11, ba 11 bathrooms. I think he has one in his, in his apartment in New York, in the Upper West Side. But uh, it's an individual choice. And what I like to say to writers, because I've gone through this process myself, is it's one thing to want to be a writer and want to write something down. And it's another thing when you have to do it. And I know I wouldn't have hung in there and gotten my book out there, The Guy's Guy's Guy to Love, unless I had to do it. And it was a story I felt need telling, and it took me years to pull the whole thing together. I wrote a, an unpublished novel and went through a series of rejections. It would have been very easy to say, hey, man, you did it, and just move on to the next thing. But I said, no, 
I know, I understand how the process works. I understand what the industry is all about. I still have a story to tell, one of many. So I'm going to get out there and I'm going to do it a little bit differently, but I'm still going to do it my way because it's my story. And that's what I did. And I got my novel out there, The Guy's Guy's Guide to Love. And ultimately that led to my website, robertmanny.com, which had has... 350 blog posts about life, love, and the pursuit of happiness, and a lot of it came out of the book itself, uh, lessons about relationships and about how men and women uh, have created this communication chasm between them that doesn't have to be there, and how we can bridge that gap. And now we have Guys Guys Radio, which started with Brad, and the story behind that was I had a, a show coming up. I had done four shows with somebody else as a guest host. And uh, she told me right before the fourth show was supposed to air, she said, I don't want to do this anymore. And I'm like, oh. And so it was up to me to find somebody as a guest and do it on my own or say, you know, that's it. That was fun. And I decided to do it. And I called up Brad and he was gracious enough to show up. So I consider my first show with Brad as my first Guys Guys Radio show. And I'll always be appreciative of Brad's friendship and Brad showing up for me when he did. So, Guys Guys Radio, we're here every Wednesday evening on KCAA in Southern California at 8 p.m. Pacific Time, 102.3, 106.5 FM, 10.50 a.m. The podcast and the YouTube drop every Thursday. The YouTube is at Robert Manning. You just go on YouTube, look for that. And uh, it's called Guys Guys TV. And as I've mentioned in the past, I'm so pleased because the show is now ranked in the top 100 podcasts in our category in Canada, the UK, and Australia. So we're doing some good things, and I think we're accomplishing the goal of bringing on guests who share their journeys, their stories, their insights to help you be informed, be inspired, be empowered, to think, to feel, to act, and maybe look over the fence, look beyond that fence in your backyard and say, hey, what is what else is there out there besides what I'm getting fed in the mainstream news? So Guys Guys Radio, we're here for you. And I'm so appreciative of my listeners and my guests and just for being here. So Guys Guys Radio, as I always like to say, guys, guys, finish first. <laughs>